You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. All right, Ezekiel chapter 44. Uh, This is the second part of the temple vision. If you remember... Uh, last week we began talking about this vision of the temple found at the end of the book. But before we get there, just a reminder as to the outline of the book. It, it, it broadly falls under five different headings. First of all, there's the prophet's call found in chapters 1 through 3. Uh, the God, uh, the God, God's people had been taken into captivity or in exile into Babylon because of their disobedience to the Lord. Uh, thousands of Jews had been taken back to that nation. And one of the, the Jews taken was a priest named Ezekiel. And on his 30th birthday, when he normally would have be- began his priestly service at the temple, he couldn't because he wasn't in Jerusalem, he was in Babylon, God called him to be a prophet to speak to his people. And that call is found in chapters 1 through 3. And then God speaks through Ezekiel uh, to, for him to preach some verbal messages and to, to share some symbolic messages that he acted out. And uh, there are some messages of judgment for Jerusalem and, Ju- and Judah in chapters 4 through 24. And then there are some messages for other nations as well in part 3, chapters 25 through 32. And then there's a message after the fall of Jerusalem. So remember... The, the, the Babylonian overthrow of the Jews came in three different waves. Uh, Ezekiel was in one of the first waves, and he kept telling the Jews in Babylon, there's a greater judgment coming, there's a devastating judgment coming where God will allow the temple to be destroyed. That happened in 586 B.C., just like Ezekiel said it would. And he has a message for, for the Jews after the fall of Jerusalem. It's almost like Ezekiel says, okay, the judgment has come Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. Now what? Where do we go from here? And he wants to get their focus back on the Lord and it wants them to recognize that God is the one true God. They should turn to him and worship him and follow him even in the midst of the devastation. And then in chapters um, 40 through 48 where we find ourselves tonight, there's a vision of restoration. God wants them to see uh, what's coming and he gives them some hope in terms of what will happen in the future, and that's what the last part of the book is about. Now here's a summary of the book. It comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. He writes, From exile in Babylon, Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom so that they shall know that I am the Lord. He's reminding them that he is the one true God. He wants them to recognize he's the one that deserves worship and praise. They should turn away from false gods and turn to him. That's the overall message of this book. So, last week in chapters 40 through 43, we talked about this vision of the temple that God gives Ezekiel. And we spent a lot of time discussing, most of our time discussing, what temple he was viewing and describing here in this book. And I won't go into all that. I'll just say this. The conclusion we came to last week, my view, is that this is a literal temple 
that will be uh, that will exist in the millennial reign of Christ. Now, I believe that Jesus Christ will return after the tribulation, and he'll set up a literal one thousand year reign on the earth. And during that reign, there will be this temple, uh, which will be a centerpiece of worship during that time. So keeping that in mind, I want you to think with me about the reason for that temple. Why, why will there be a temple uh, there? And here's my, here's my answer to that. I believe the temple will have a teaching function, much like it did in the Old Testament. The Old Testament temple, Solomon's temple, and Zerubbabel's temple. The temple will have a teaching function during the millennial reign of Christ. In other words... Through the, the ministries that take place at this temple structure, God wants to teach the people about himself and some other important truths. So I want to just walk through six, six lessons or six truths, six realities that will be taught through the ministries of the temple during the millennial reign of Christ. So first of all... Uh, a major truth that will be taught is that God is glorious. God is glorious. So look back in chapter 44. The, the, the temple has been described in detail. The, the measurements and, and the, 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 the design. And it's very intricate and very interesting. And then in chapter 44, the Bible says, He brought me, the, the one showing him, uh, an angel showing him the outer gate of the sanctuary... He brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate, shall go out by the same way. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, watch this, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And there's a little bit of Old Testament history here about the, the glory of the Lord. When the Israelites uh, in the wilderness wanderings followed the instructions that God gave Moses and built a, um, uh, a structure, a tent-like structure in which to house the Ark of the Covenant, and they did it according to God's design, when that tabernacle um, was completed, God showed his pleasure in that by manifesting his presence. The Bible says it was like a cloud of glory. The word is kavod uh, and, and, and uh, shekinah. It speaks of the, the manifest presence of God. They could see God's presence coming down uh, from heaven and resting on the Ark of the Covenant uh, that was in the center of the tabernacle structure in the Holy of Holies. Same thing over in 1 Kings chapter 8. When Samuel led the people to build a permanent structure, the temple, uh, and they put the Ark of the Covenant uh, where it should go in the Holy of Holies, again, God manifest His presence. His, His glory came down and rested upon the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember... In Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel sees this vision of the glory of God departing. And that was God's way of saying to his people, 
because you've turned from me, because you're worshiping false gods, because you're worshiping idols, because you're in rebellion, I will no longer dwell among my people. And, and Ezekiel sees this glory cloud, the glory of God, leaving the temple. And so here's what the Lord's saying. There's coming a day, even though you've disobeyed me, rebelled against me, turned from me, you've undergone devastating judgment, there's coming a day when my glory will return and dwell among my people. My people will see my glory again. Uh, and that is a, an awesome, awesome reality. And uh, notice there that the glory of God, and this is in your notes, calls for reverence. Because look what it says back in verse 4. I looked and behold the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And what did he do? I fell on my face. Before the manifest presence of God, uh, uh, Ezekiel falls on his face. Which, by the way, is a common... Um, a common response throughout the book. Every time Ezekiel sees the glory of God, way back in chapter 1, he sees the glory of God by the river Kibar in Babylon. Every time he sees the glory of God, he falls down and falls like a dead man and falls on his face. There's something about being in the presence of God that caused fear and trembling and respect and reverence to well up in his life. And so one of the roles of the temple in the millennial reign of Christ will be to remind everyone that, that comes to that temple for worship, to remind everyone that he's glorious. He's, he's manifest his glorious presence there in the temple. They were reminded of just how awesome God is. God is glorious. God is majestic. And you know, people will see God and fall on their face. People will see God and have this, this, this deep, reverence for God. But here's the question. Should our reverence be any less because we can't see God? Let me ask it again, because obviously you're not listening to me, alright? Should our reverence be any less because we can't see God? No. God is God, right? Seen or unseen. And we believe that God is real and that God exists. And if there's something that I want to happen in my own life, I want to grow in my reverence for God and fear of the Lord. Uh, there's, there's a song we sing. Um, what's the title of the song? Um, um, it's called Revelation Song. And there's a line in Revelation Song that always gets me. Every time I sing it, it says, Filled with wonder, awestruck wonder at the very mention of your name. And I sing that and I'm thinking, am I there? Am I there? That, that, that I'm actually filled with awestruck wonder at the very mention of my Lord's name. And I think, I'm not where I want to be. <laughs> I, I want to I have this, this deep-seated reverence. So what I'm saying is this, because we know God through Jesus Christ, because we have the Word of God that reveals Him to us, we don't have to wait for the millennial reign of Christ to take God seriously. Amen? We can live in this life in the here and now and should live in this life in the here and now with a deep-seated reverence for the Lord because He is glorious, right? So the first 
reality that will be taught through the ministries of the temple in the 1,000-year reign of Christ is that God is glorious and it will be taught over and over and over again. And closely related is the second truth that will be taught. God is holy. God is holy. Now, it gets very interesting here in chapter 44, verses 5 through 31. And there's a lot of detail there, but I'll kind of sum it up by saying this. Um, the Lord is, is, is letting Ezekiel understand that in the millennial reign of Christ, when the temple is, is built, the temple is constructed, the priesthood will be reestablished. There are going to be priests that oversee the ministries taking place here at the um, temple. And so you read about that at the end of uh, chapter 44. And there are some, some reasons for this. Why would there be priests that are functioning there in the temple structure? Well, one reason is to help people keep the statutes of the temple. Look what it says in verse 5 of chapter 44. The Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears uh, all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. There will be... Laws and statutes and commands and regulations related to how you worship God. The, the ceremonies that you go through here at the temple uh, to, to worship the Lord. And, and the priest will oversee that because then he goes to talk about the, the different roles of the priest. And it says that the people um, would be taught about the holiness of God by these priests. Look what it says in verse 23 of this same chapter, chapter 44. They, the priests, shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. So one of the, the, the roles of the priest in the millennial temple is to teach people, just like the Old Testament, you can read the book of Leviticus about this, to teach people God is holy and we are not. To, to, to fix in people's minds and hearts categories of clean and unclean so that we understand uh, that when we, when, we, when we place ourselves right beside the holiness of God, we fall short. We are unclean, which leads us to the reality that, hey, we need some help. We need a Savior. So the, the, the priest will be teaching people about the holiness of God and, and will lead the people according to God's judgments. Look what it says in verse 24. In a dispute, they shall act as judges. They shall judge it according to my judgment. So they're going to... They're going to kind of keep order among the people and teaching people about the judgments, the rules, the, the principles of the Lord. And so one of the reasons the priesthood will be established is to remind everyone that God is holy. God is holy. What's the word holy mean? Anybody? Anybody? What's the word? What's it mean? Set apart. That's exactly what it means. What else? Somebody describe holy. What's holy mean? Clean. Without blemish, right? Pure. I, I like the way, I, one of my favorite definitions of holiness is found in uh, 1 John 1 verse 5 where it says, God is light, in him there's no darkness at all. No darkness at all. It means absolute moral perfection. That's, that's what the word holy means. And, and, and the people will be learning in the millennial reign, be reminded in the millennial reign that God is holy, a God of absolute moral perfection. Now, if the glory of God, the manifest presence of God calls for reverence, the holiness of God demands atonement. Demands atonement. Because again, clean, unclean. 
He is light. We are dark. We, we are sinners. We need a Savior. And that, that will be taught over and over again during the millennium. Now remember last week we said that at this temple, it says a little bit earlier, there will be sacrifices. And we said, what in the world is that all about? Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and he shed his blood for this. So why will they be sacrificing animals at this temple in the millennium? And I told you last week, I believe it has the same function that the sacrifices had in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the, the, the sacrifices never saved anyone. They pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, who is Christ. Every time an animal's blood was shed, it was a reminder to the people that innocence must cover guilt. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. It pointed to Jesus Christ's death on the cross. So the, the Old Testament sacrifices pointed ahead to the cross. These sacrifices, this is after the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, after the church age, after the, the tribulation. These sacrifices in the millennium will point backwards to the cross, reminding people what Jesus Christ did. And again, helping to establish those categories for people that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. I need Jesus. Now, you might say, well, who's going to need saving during the millennial reign of Christ? And we talked about this last week, so just kind of a quick refresher. If you're a Christian, all right, if you know Jesus, you're born again, when Jesus Christ returns, there's going to be two groups of people that will meet him in the air. One are those who have died in Christ, Christians who have passed away. When Jesus comes back, he'll come back for their bodies. Their bodies will be raised from the dead. When they're raised from the dead, they'll be raised imperishable, incorruptible, undefiled, brand new glorified bodies. And the, the, the Christians who are raised will live in those glorified bodies for all of eternity. So we, so we all get a new body. Okay, If you're dead, it'll be resurrected, brought back from the dust or the ashes. If you're a Christian when Christ returns and you are not dead, you're still alive, the Bible says you'll be caught up in the air with the Lord. And uh, the implication there is that's when you get your glorified body. And then we'll meet one another in the air. So those raised, those raptured, will meet together in the air, will have glorified bodies. And so, and there's opinions about the order of all that and how that all plays out. But after the tribulation, after the second coming, there's no question, Christians will be on the earth reigning with Christ during the millennial reign. Brand new glorified bodies. Okay, So that means we're secure in Christ. We cannot lose our salvation. We're, we're forever with the Lord in the millennium and even after the millennium when the new heaven and new earth comes upon or, or ushers, uh, God ushers that in. So that'll be pretty cool. But the Bible also tells us that there are going to be people who are on the earth, who live through the tribulation. A lot of people aren't going to live through the tribulation, but, but some will. And they're going to be on the earth, and they're going to marry and be given in marriage. They're going to have children, and, and there's going to be an entire population of people without glorified bodies during the millennial reign of Christ. And as I said last week, that's why when Satan is uh, unbound at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, he's going to lead people astray. He's not going to lead me astray. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm in my glorified body. I'm forever with the Lord. He's not going to lead you astray. If you're a Christian, you're in your glorified body. You're going, you're going to the new heavens and the new earth when it's all over, right? Who's he going to lead astray? He's going to lead people astray that live the millennial reign of Christ that don't have glorified bodies. Many of them, I believe, will get saved. And they will need these 
these symbolic reminders of clean and unclean. Light and darkness. Need for a savior. And the sacrificial system, the things that happened at the temple, will point people back to the cross. It's as if to say, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. You're a sinner that needs innocence to cover your guilt. And guess what? 2,000, 3,000 years ago, someone came to die on the cross for your sins. His name is Jesus. Right? And so, the holiness of God demands atonement. And the ministries of the temple will remind people that the ultimate atoning sacrifice who is Jesus, has come. Now, for some of you thinking, this blows, I've never thought about this, kind of blows my mind. It blows my mind, too. And I'll be honest with you, I don't understand it all. Okay, I'm just trying to put the pieces together the best I can, but I think the broad brushstrokes point us in this direction. God is glorious. God is holy. That'll be taught through the ministries of the future temple. All right, Everybody with me? Say amen. If you're not, just don't say anything. Number three. Another teaching truth. Life comes from the Lord. And we get to the, my, my favorite part of this section. Uh, look in Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. Fascinating passage. Life. L-I-F-E. Thank you. Life. Life comes from the Lord. Now look in chapter 47. Then he, the tour guide, showing him this future temple, this future glorious temple, brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. So the door of the temple indicates the entryway into the holy place and holy of holies. He's right there at the center of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant would be house in the, the, the holy of holies. And he noticed that water is 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 flowing down from this threshold. Um, it says from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and he led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. So they're looking at this, this water that's coming from the temple, and he kind of steps in, and it's ankle deep. All right, so, so keep reading. Again, he measured a thousand. He led me through the water, and it was knee deep. So it's getting a little bit deeper. Again, he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand. It was a river that I could not... Uh, passed through for the water had risen it was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through so it's a it's a it's a raging river at this point and he said to me son of man have you seen this and he led me back to the bank of the river now you might be wondering what in the world is this all about why is there this river cascading from the temple what what is that all about well it's explained in the next section look what it says in verse 7 as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region, which if you know the current uh, geographical situation in Israel, the east of Jerusalem, where the, the temple uh, will be, the east of that area is, is desert. All right. It says, 
this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. What sea? The Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. That gives a clue. He's talking about the Dead Sea here. How many have been to Israel? Raise your hand. Okay, how many have been to the Dead Sea? How many floated in the Dead Sea? Yeah, yeah, I have too. Yeah. So, yeah, so if, if you've been there, you know that it, is, it has very high salt content. It's the lowest place on the, the uh, face of the earth in terms of elevation, and it has very high salt content. And it, it makes you buoyant. You just sit there and you kind of just kind of float in the, in the, in the salty uh, water. It is uh, very, very interesting. And because it's so salty, there's no life there. You, can't, you don't go fishing in the Dead Sea. All right? there, there's, just, there's, there's, there's no life in that uh, body of water. But this says, the wa- now watch this, the water that's flowing from the temple, it's heading east and it enters this, this sea, this salty sea, and it says the, the, the water coming from the temple will turn the salty sea fresh. That's kind of cool, isn't it? And keep reading. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. So it's going to change the entire uh, ecosystem. It's going to turn this salty water Fresh and the fresh water will begin to produce life and support life. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Inglame. It will be a place for the spreading of nets, as fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, Mediterranean. But as swamps and marshes will not become fresh, they are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So this is interesting. In in the millennial reign, Ezekiel sees this rushing river that begins as a trickle, and it flows to the Dead Sea, and it is so powerful that it turns the, the saltiest sea on the face of the planet fresh. And where there was nothing but death, now there is life. Life, teeming life happens here at the Dead Sea. They probably have to change the name. It'll be called the Alive Sea. All right, They're going to have to change the name because it will not be the Dead Sea anymore. There, there's going to be life there. Now, this is kind of interesting. And I remember this from my trip to Israel in 2015. But our, um, our guide told us that there are some troubling things happening with the Dead Sea. It is, it is, they're losing, it's losing water. It's losing water quickly. And uh, they even showed us places where the Dead Sea used to reach, and it's, it's receded uh, to an alarming degree. And so the authorities in Israel are concerned about this. since They've been coming up with plans. And I remember talking about this. I said, did I, did I hear that correctly? So I, I did what any truth-seeking person does. I Googled it, all right? And I came across an article from June 2022. So this is just this last year. And it was from the, the, the uh, Jewish paper Haaretz, which means the people. And here's the first paragraph. A major study released by the Environmental Protection Ministry on Monday is calling on the government to move forward with a giant infrastructure project in the south with the aim of restoring water levels in the Dead Sea. So they're they're coming up with a plan for this. 
After exploring various alternatives to the problem of the shrinking sea, its authors conclude that development of a canal linking the Red and Dead Seas is the best solution. So they got this plan. The plan is build a canal. You know the Red Sea. That's where the waters parted and Moses led the, the Hebrews across on dry land. Canal to, to bring water into the Red Sea and fill the Dead Sea back up. That's their plan. But this p- passage tells us it's not going to work. It's going to take the life-giving river from the temple to replenish the Dead Sea and to turn it into a fresh water body so that it is teeming with life. And the, 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 the picture of the river is meant to convey the reality, the truth, that life comes from the Lord. Everything he touches, he gives life to. God is a life-giving God. And there, there are three things real quickly, and I got caught up in this, and I don't want to take too long, but the, the three things this, this river, I think, reminds us of. First of all, the river illustrates salvation. Look over in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Just very quickly, remember the story where Jesus encounters the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he ministers to her and he tells her something very interesting. She came to to draw physical water. And Jesus uh, says to her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, because he asked her for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? What are you talking about, Jesus? What, What living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. This is physical water. You drink it, it quenches your thirst, but you will get thirsty again. It's it's temporary Uh, It it quenches in a temporary manner. But, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, metaphor for salvation, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this life-giving river uh, in chapter 47 reminds us of the life-giving power of the gospel. That when we know Jesus Christ, we drink from a well that satisfies our deepest thirst. It satisfies us with salvation, a relationship with the Lord. And when you know Christ, you'll never thirst again. Amen? So it illustrates salvation. Secondly, this river depicts the Christian life. Remember, you don't have to turn there, but remember over in John chapter 7, Jesus on the last day of the feast, he stands up and and he talks about rivers of living water flowing from our innermost being. And it says there he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, the, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit indwells you. He lives on the inside of you. And Jesus compares the ministry of the Holy Spirit to a mighty rushing river of water. Doing what? Giving life. Abundant life. Changing your life. And so the river, I believe, reminds us of salvation. reminds us of the the role of the Spirit in the Christian life. And, this is real interesting, this river foreshadows heaven. Now I want you to turn to Revelation 22. The last Chapter in the Bible. Last chapter in the Bible. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far. I love that joke. I say it all the time. It's just sorry. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Now, this description is the new heavens and new earth. 
God, God will bring in a new heavens, new earth. The old heavens, old earth will pass away. And the centerpiece of the new heavens, new earth will be the new Jerusalem. And there will be no temple here, remember, because the, the Lamb is the temple. There will be, be no physical temple like there was in the millennial reign of Christ. But notice some similarities to Ezekiel 47. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing again from God, from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Just like Ezekiel 47. There will be fruit-bearing trees on either side of the river. The leaves of the trees... Uh, of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So this river in, uh, coming from the temple in the millennial reign of Christ, I believe foreshadows the heavenly river, which again will have the same function, picturing the life-giving power of God. Number four. We've got three to go. Okay, we're, I'm going to go real fast now, okay? Number four. Back in chapter 47, another truth that will be taught... Uh, this millennial temple, is that Israel will be restored. Israel will be restored. Look in Ezekiel chapter 47. Look in verse 13. After the description of the river, the life-giving river... Thus says the Lord God, this is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the twelve tribes of who? Israel. Twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph have two portions. You shall divide equally what I swore to give your fathers. This land shall fall to you as your inheritance. And then there's a, there's a, a large section uh, going through chapter 48 that describes how the land is to be divided among the different tribes of Israel. Israel will be destroyed. Now, there's disagreement on this. You need to understand that. I believe this is literally speaking of ethnic Israel. I believe he's talking here about the Jews. And the Lord raised up Abraham, gave Abraham descendants. Through his descendants sent a Messiah who died on the cross for the sins of the world. So now anyone can come to Christ and know the Lord can be uh, a part of the church. And for, for someone to be saved, they must come to Jesus. We are the, the people of God. We are the church. But I also believe God's not done with ethnic Israel yet. He sent the Messiah through Israel, but he's not done with Israel. And Romans 11 teaches that. Romans 11 indicates that as the end time scenario unfolds, there's going to be a great ingathering of ethnic Jews that, again, recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And there will be a great gathering of ethnic Jews, I believe, during the millennial reign of Christ who, who worship King Jesus. They are Christians. They are Messianic Jews. And the, the land will be divided up. The, the, the Jews will be restored in their land. They will have the promised land. And it's as, as, it's as if God's promises to the Jews comes full circle. Israel will be restored. And again, remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to Jews who had been displaced, who were far away from their homeland. The glory of God had left the temple, and they're thinking, God must be done with us. There's no hope. And God said, I'm not done with my people. There's going to be a great gathering of my people, a full circle moment for my people. I will restore my people the Jews. So I believe that Israel will be restored, chapter 47 and chapter 48. But here's the deal. 
when it comes to this gathering of worship, when it comes to to bowing the knee and the heart before King Jesus, when it comes to the, the worship at the Millennial Temple, everyone is welcome. There are Jews here, absolutely, but everyone's welcome. I want you to look with me in chapter 47, verse 21. 47, verse 21. So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners. Interesting. These are people who are not Jews. The sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. So they're not ethnic Jews, but they're mine. That's what he's saying. Just like you're mine, they're mine. They belong to me. With you shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes. They shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. And whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there shall, you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. So there will be ethnic Jews. There, the, the millennial temple worshiping King Jesus. There will be sojourners who are not Jews worshiping King Jesus at the temple. And I read this and I thought, where have I heard this before? And I thought of Psalm 87. So hold your place, turn to Psalm 87. I'm, I'm going real fast. I'm almost done. Look at Psalm 87. It's too good not to look at. This is the psalm that was the basis for the great hymn, Glorious Things of You Are Spoken, or of Thee Are Spoken. Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Psalm 87, seven verses. Let me just read it for you. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. That would be the city of Jerusalem. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Jerusalem's a special city, a special place. God loves Mount Zion. Glorious things of you were spoken, O city of God, say law. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab, Babylon, these are non-Jews, Philistia, Tyre with Cush. In other words, at my city, people who are not Jews will worship me. And look what he says in the next phrase. This one was born there, they say. This one was born there. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the most time self will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, not just the Jews, he registers the peoples, all the people groups. He registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. So there will be people who are born Jews, who worship Jesus at the temple, Uh, in the millennial reign, and there will be people who are born again and are people of God because they've been saved by Jesus. And they'll be there at the temple too, worshiping King Jesus, Jews and Gentiles alike. I believe that around the millennial temple, there'll be people from every tribe and tongue and language anticipating what heaven will look like. Everyone is welcome. Aren't you glad? That's good news for me because I'm not a Jew. I'm glad that I can be here at this, I can be a sojourner that's welcomed and accepted and even get some property in the millennial reign of Christ. Everyone is welcome. And the number six, and we'll be through. Final truth he wants to teach his people through this temple in the millennium is this. The Lord will be forever present among his people. The Lord will be forever present among his people. Look what it says. Turn to the very last chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 48. Chapter 48. Look what it says in verse 35. 
Last verse of the last chapter. Can you believe we made it? I don't even know when we started. When did we start Ezekiel? Anybody know? When was it? Does anybody? 2000. <laughs> I hadn't even been here that long. Uh, a long. We started a long time ago. But look what it says. Last verse, last chapter. The circumference of the city. This is, the, I believe, Jerusalem in the millennial reign of Christ. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord. That's the, the, the divine name of God, Yahweh. The Lord is there. Jehovah or Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. The, the, the most important thing about this millennial temple, the most important thing about this city during the millennial reign of Christ as the people gather together is that God will be there. People get to be in the presence of the one true God. The Lord is there. Which, by the way, anticipates heaven. Because let me show you what it says in Revelation chapter 22. Turn again, last, last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. We're going to close with this. Revelation 22, verse 4. We gather in the the new heavens and new earth, the, the city of God that comes down. There'll be a river there and fruit with trees of life on both sides of the river. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Look in verse 4, and don't miss this, don't miss this. Five, five words. They will see his face. Wow. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, one day your faith will become sight. And you get to see your Lord's face. And be with him forever. So the presence of God in the millennial reign of Christ, the presence of the Lord there in the millennial temple anticipates the forever presence of God in heaven and we get to enjoy his presence. By the way, a heaven that has streets of gold and mansions designed specifically for us and gates of pearl, a heaven that is filled with beauty and splendor but does not have the Lord is not heaven. God's presence is ultimately what makes heaven heaven. Amen? He's there. We get to be with Him. The Lord will be forever present among His people. And so we draw this study to a close. And it ends with filling the hearers' hearts and our hearts with hope as to what is coming. God is saying, there's coming glory. I'm, I'm sending my Son. He will die for the sins of the world. He will rise from the dead. He will ascend to the Father. He'll come back and set everything right. He'll set up His, his kingdom on the earth during a, a thousand year reign. And then He'll usher in a new heavens and new earth. And, and if you know Him as Lord and Savior, you get to be with Him. It's, it's good news. There's hope. Even in the midst of what you are going through. And so hopefully this book has ended for you with a... A good dose of hope. There, listen, look at me, look at me. There's glory coming, amen? There's glory coming. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged 
and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.